Thank you for listening to sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Seven Letters. Seven Letters is a sermon series looking at the letters of Jesus Christ to seven ancient churches. These letters fill the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation written by John, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. As we explore these seven letters, we will seek to discover what we as the church today can learn from Christ's words to the seven churches of Revelation. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, So I hate using sports analogies because they can fall short of kind of hitting the larger crowd, but I think it translates to a couple other things, and I'll try to do that here. So I grew up playing hockey, and... um, the hockey locker room was a uh, place of myth and legend um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, but one of the significant myths and legends that took place in uh, hockey locker rooms was the speak about the other teams in our leagues, right? Uh, and so we knew who Blaine was. I played for Centennial. Uh, we knew who Blaine was. We knew who Fridley was. We knew who Moundsview was. Uh, we knew who Sauk Center was. We knew who Moorhead was. We knew who all these places were. They were towns, and they had teams, and the towns and the teams had reputations for particular things. Um, And so when we saw on the schedule, um, which was a paper schedule that we used to magnetize to the fridge, uh, when we saw on the schedule who it was that we were about to play, we would walk into the locker room with a particular air because of that particular team and what they were known for. Uh, If you play sports, maybe you understand this kind of an idea, that you may have entered into the locker room with significant intimidation uh, in the room, uh, that the tension was thick, you could cut it with a knife, so to say, because you knew these guys were mean, these guys fought hard, these guys knew how to body check, they grew up around cornfields, and so they killed pigs and ate corn and grew big and tall and strong, 
and they were like giants, and we looked like grasshoppers in their midst, and so we'd step out onto the ice with all that intimidation to kind of weigh us down. And there was always a moment, even when we faced those intimidating teams, and we had a pretty courageous bunch, the guys I grew up with, uh, but there was always the moment that humanized the other players, right? It was like the first good shot or maybe goal or like the first big hit where they actually fell over and they bled instead of us or where they screwed up and got a penalty, right? It was like that first moment where you went, oh, they're not giants. They're not like steroid-taking you know, muscle freak, baby child type, like, man that are growing beards. They're just guys who put on their skates one foot at a time, geared up just like we did, probably talked about the game just like we did, and we suddenly realized they're, they're just, they're normal, right? And we do this in a, in a lot of other ways. Guys, you do this with girls, right? Like, whoo, or you did this. Men, if you're married, you should redo this. Whoa, she's amazing, Right? Like those eyes, oh, and that hair, whoa. Like she's just, oh, and you get before her, you can't even speak because the beauty just overwhelms you, and you just, right? Like, come on, husbands, this is. <laughs> but the beautiful moment is when you realize they're, they're, they're human too, right? They're, they're, they're just another ball of history and hopes and future and some anxieties and fears tied in there. You know, they've got these aspirations and dreams for their life too, but they wonder if they'll ever be able to actually be who God's made them to be. You know, they, and you start to realize, oh, they, I can talk. I can just be normal. I can converse with them, right? So a lot of times we build people up and then we start to realize, wow, they're, they're actually just humans, well, unfortunately, we do the exact reverse of that with Jesus. Most of the time in our present day, when we think of Jesus, we think Jesus is my homeboy, right? We think Jesus is my buddy, my pal, um, that we're just arm in arm skipping through a field of flowers, that he's basically like me, only he's lived longer, Right? So he's like, you know, almost good, maybe a little better than me. He's got some extra superpowers, but really he kind of reasons like I do. He kind of has the same idea of the world that I do. We, we, we do the opposite. We put Jesus in this very low position. We do this with God and with Jesus. And much of the point of this letter in Revelation, these letters in Revelation, is to put Jesus back into that category where he belongs, which is the glorious, omnipotent, powerful one that has no equal, that has no beginning and no ending, the one who speaks only truth out of his mouth, the one who will judge the nations, and the one who will live forever. He is alive and he will always be alive. We need these reminders because we're prone to dumb Jesus down and therefore lose what the Bible rightly calls the fear of the Lord. Now, I know that's like a super popular statement, uh, and it goes right along with the idea of God as judge, which is also a very popular concept in our 
culture and our time and place. Uh, and that's what this text in Revelation 2, the end of the chapter, uh, brings us to deal with. Because Jesus, as the first verse states in our passage, is the Son of God. That is a statement with no equal in all of the history of mankind. Some religious leaders said, I can show you how to get to God. Some religious leaders said, I can show you how to try and impress God. Some religious leaders have said, I heard from God. I know of God. Jesus Christ stands unique and apart from all others with the claim of equality with God. Son of God, born among men, but known in all time as the God of heaven and earth, who dwelt before the world was made and who had perfect fellowship and harmony with his Father in heaven. And this Son of God describes himself as one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So we're going to pray in a minute and dig into this, but the church at Thyatira needed to recorrect its view of Jesus. It needed to move further into a view of Jesus as the Son of God with eyes burning like fire and feet of burnished bronze. We'll see more exactly what that means and what it leads to as we dig in. So let's pray first. And then we'll jump into this passage. Lord, we love you and we need you. Um, we thank you, God, that this day is a day uh, to join together and worship and know uh, that there is a God in heaven, that he sees and he knows, uh, that yes, he judges and he loves, and that it is because of his great love that he must judge evil. Lord, I, I know, I wrestle with it, and I know this world that we live in uh, wrestles with that idea, and so I pray that you would move us closer into a right view of who Jesus is, that we would not dumb Jesus down to be just kind of our equal, uh, that we would not dumb Jesus down to just be some kind of a good leader, uh, but that we would indeed sober up and realize there is none like Jesus. There never has been any like Jesus. There never will be any like Jesus, that he is alone, the Son of God, that he has dwelt forever in eternity with you, Father, enjoys perfect fellowship with you in spirit, in perfect communion, in perfect holiness, in perfect power and in knowledge of all things. May your knowledge not scare us today, but may we learn how to fear the Lord. That's a tall task in our time, God. And so we need your help. Holy Spirit, we need you to open our hearts and our minds. And uh, we need your power. I need your power, God. Please do away with Derek and his words and bring Jesus to this place to declare truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So I want to read this passage again in uh, Revelation 2 so that we can continue to be more and more familiar with it. And then we're just going to look at a couple of uh, issues that are brought to light here for the church of Thyatira. So it says this in verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, 
your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who, hold, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So every one of these letters is addressed to a different church in a different city. We've talked about Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and now Thyatira. Um, and a lot of the cities that we've looked at so far were, were really significant either, either religiously or politically. Uh, so they were important seats of power. Uh, they, were, they were important uh, arenas of worship. They were, they, were, they were big on those stages. Well, Thyatira wasn't. Uh, Thyatira was a, a plain city. Uh, it was in the middle of a, a field, basically. Uh, uh, if, when it comes to uh, military might, it basically had none. Um, it was essentially very, very vulnerable. Um, and there were not a whole lot of significant places of either Roman power, like seats of authority, or religious um, cults or, or, or practices. And so none of those two things were really prominent in Thyatira. Thyatira, if you can imagine modern day, basically was like a, a, a town in the Midwest with a bunch of factories. Okay, flatland, short buildings, right? No giant monuments, no towering structures, just kind of flatland, short buildings. Because in Thyatira, mostly people were making stuff. They were making ironworks or fabric or cutting stones. It was largely just a, played, a place of, of trade guilds uh, where people pooled their resources and their knowledge to build better stuff um, to, to, to produce things. Um, and so Thyatira had in it, the, the thought is that Thyatira had in it these guilds which benefited from sending what they make uh, to places that used what they made to build temples and places of worship for false gods and idols and stuff. And so a lot of their work was in some way an attachment to some of those gods. They thought if we do really good, those gods will be pleased with us. And they even would do things like have festivals um, that would celebrate, hey, the stuff we make is going to be used to worship these gods, and that's great. And so they would actually participate in some of the, the pagan practices of the worship of those different gods. And so in that scenario and in that scene, we have the church of Thyatira. And in verse 19, it's very encouraging, actually. This church gets praised big time by Jesus, right? It, Jesus says, I know your works, which is something he's, he's basically saying to every church. He's saying, I, I know something about you. All the time he's saying, I know this. But he's saying to Thyatira, I know your works. And he says this, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Okay, so he names four works. And then he says, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, do you remember the, the letter to, to Ephesus? 
Jesus said, go back and do what you used to do. You stopped loving each other. Go back and do that again. Otherwise, you're not going to be a church anymore. Like, there was a real strong word from Jesus. Well, Jesus says the reverse here to Thyatira. He's like, you guys are increasing in works, right? You're, You're actually doing more of the stuff that you started doing. You're doing it to a greater extent or, or to a, a more impactful way, in a, in a more impactful way. And it's, it's an encouraging thing to hear this about a church that Jesus does have to correct in a minute, but it pushes us towards this understanding that the Christian life is actually a, a, a process of growing in works, right? Now, we talk about grace and works here and the, the, the tension between grace and works because we, we have to address the fact that humans are prone to think that we make God happy by doing our works and therefore become justified before God by stuff we do, right? So the idea is I have to be really, really good, and when I'm really, really good, then I get my ticket to heaven and God will let me in. Or just simply if my good works outweigh my bad works, right? Like I know I do bad works, but if I concentrate and do enough good ones, if I, if I give enough time and energy or work, or if I never honk at anybody, or if I always open the door for old ladies, or, you know, like if I, if I, if I get the scale tipped, then one day I'll get before God and God will go, oh man, you did a lot of good stuff. Come on, let's party in heaven, right? So that's not the teaching of works in scripture. The teaching of justification in scripture is that we are justified alone because of God's grace, Okay? That by grace, through faith, we stand before God as clean and just and whole. And that that is not because of our effort, but because of Christ's effort. Because Jesus was the only perfectly righteous one. Because Jesus was the only one to fully satisfy the holiness of God. Because Jesus alone is righteous. Indeed, in motive, in heart, and in mind. And that we are none of those things. But because of Christ on the cross... Our places are exchanged where our filthy rags are put on Jesus and his righteous robes are thrown on our shoulders. And therefore, we stand before God as justified. But the teaching of justification by faith because of God's grace does not say, therefore, you don't have to do anything. The teaching of justification by grace through faith is because you are redeemed by Jesus. Because you have a new heart, you now have a new desire. You now have a new power. You now have a whole new purpose. And those things will be executed. They will be lived out through deeds. We'll do things differently. We'll become different people. And when Jesus speaks in this text, he's saying, guys, I see the stuff you do. He's looking at a church and he's talking to a church about their actions. Right? He's saying you're not just loving, but you're growing in love. That you're not just serving, but you're growing in service. That you're not just patient, but you're growing in patient endurance. Right? There's a growth in Thyatira that Jesus praises. So let us not be fools and think God does not expect the gospel to bear fruit in our lives and create growth in our works. It should, and it will. And when it does, Jesus applauds that. Not because we're justified by the works, but because the works begin to resemble Jesus, right? 
And so the question for us, just simply verse 19, is do I grow? Do I grow? Right? Walking with Jesus for a month, walking with Jesus for 10 years, walking with Jesus for 20 years, wherever you are in a journey with Jesus, can you look at your life and plot some growth? Can you say, I love more today? Not because I tried harder, but because my heart is being transformed by the love of Jesus and I'm starting to realize, wow, I can love like he loves. Right? How do you measure that? Well, we talked about it a couple weeks in Ephesus. Do you pursue people? Do you seek to lay your life down for the good of other people? Or is your entire life all week long, all month long, all year long, marked by mindfulness towards self and forgetfulness of others. That's not loving. So if you're not growing in love, we need to ask what's happened in my heart and in my life. Have I forgotten the truth of God, that Jesus loves by laying his life down, and that I'm being transformed into a little Christ? to learn to love like he did. Also, service is mentioned, right? Do we grow in service? Part of this is learning where. Where where can I serve others? How can I be a part of building God's kingdom in the church? Do we look back on that same span of time and go, wow, I'm growing in service. I'm growing in my desire to help others see Jesus. I'm growing in my desire to help other people in areas where they're weak so that I can build them up. Do I eagerly seek opportunities to give of my time and my talent and my treasure so that God might use feeble little me to display his glory for the world to see, right? And patient endurance as well. Do we grow in that? What a struggle we're in. One of the main things in Revelation that is encouraged uh, and spurred on is this idea of patient endurance. Jesus is telling these churches, it's hard to follow me. And it's going to get harder, he says. And the book of Revelation illustrates this by beasts and dragons and monsters showing the ferocity with which the enemy tries to strike down the church. And again and again, the church endures. And Revelation is not saying, this is what the end of the world is going to be, look, be like. Revelation is saying, this is what all of time, from Jesus' departure till his return, it's always going to be like this. There will always be a dragon, Satan. There will always be beasts, which in that time was, was pointing towards Caesar and, and the Roman oppression. There will always be false prophets, which is pointing to bad teaching and wrong doctrine about Jesus. There will always be persecution, which is pointing to government officials trying to squelch God's kingdom by killing people in the church. The book of Revelation is a giant portrait of all of time telling us the church will always have to endure some of these things. And then I think for us, the most pertinent of all those is Babylon the Great. Because Babylon the Great 
was a seductress. Babylon the Great spoke of a world that brought power and wealth and comfort to people. And Babylon the Great demanded you lay down Jesus and pick up all these beautiful treasures that the world has to offer. And that's where real joy is going to be. That's where real conquest will exist. The book of Revelation warns against us in this time, in this place, that the temptation to worship the things of the world, to find comfort in the things of the world, to be wooed by the power of the world, is something that is prone to pull us from devotion to Jesus. And so we must patiently endure these temptations and these trials and these persecutions. It's what so much of the book of Revelation points to. Now there's one of these works that I've intentionally skirted for the last sec couple seconds, and that is faith. Scripture points us to the truth that what we believe will lead us to behaviors, to what we do. What we believe will lead us to what we do, okay? Our theology will dictate for us the life we live. So if we believe that God is just a small G God and that comfort and riches and prosperity are a big G God, that will do something to our behavior. If we believe that God is not really that strong and that those who persecute the church are very, very strong, then that will dictate fearful behavior. Right? If we believe that the promises of the world, the, 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 the great things that it tells us we can inherit on this earth, if we believe that those things are greater than the, the ultimate inheritance that Jesus will give us in the final days, if we believe that, then we're going to lead a different kind of life. So our belief, our faith, what we, what we attach ourselves to is going to dictate for us the way that we behave. And so this belief, in, or the, the struggle of belief in Thyatira is not about their love and their service and their patient endurance, but rather their struggle with faith that Jesus confronts is that they are tolerating a false teaching that leads people into deceptive practices and away from faithfulness to Jesus. The issue at stake for Jesus in the church of Thyatira is faithfulness and holiness. They are becoming impure because of some of the things that are happening in the church. And Jesus addresses that. So he digs into that uh, in verse 20. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, we talked last week a lot about idolatry and what it means in the Bible, and how we are prone to put up other things as greater than they are, and to accept the false promises that this world gives us rather than the true promises that God gives us, and that that leads us to idolatry. Now, what's going on in this church? There's this person teaching in the church. Jesus calls her that woman Jezebel. 
Uh, this is another place where Jesus ties in some Old Testament stuff, right? So a really brief history. Israel was in Exodus or in, uh, in Egypt, and the Exodus, they were led out of Egypt, and then they wandered the desert uh, for 40 years. We talked about that last week. And then they entered into the promised land, and there was a time of judges, and then finally the kingdom was set up, right? And there was the first king. His name was Saul. And so he began to rule Israel. And then there was the second king, really popular guy. His name was David, right? And so David expanded the empire tremendously, right? So he, he pushed out the borders of Israel. He ruled well. Uh, he was a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. He, he, he worshiped God and didn't worship idols. Uh, he was a really sinful guy who messed up really, really bad. We know that too. Uh, and as a result of that broken uh, life that David lived, God told him, one day this kingdom is going to be fractured, and it's going to be fractured in your family. But he maintains a promise, but there will always be a king. And one day there will be a great king, and that king will rule over all the world. And that king was Jesus. So after David is Solomon, uh, he rules with wisdom. The kingdom expands even more. He builds God's temple and builds uh, his own palace. Um, and then, like the fool, he begins to accept gifts from foreign countries and even marry some of the princesses from foreign countries. And as a result of that, uh, worship from other places starts to infiltrate Israel. And eventually what happens is the kingdom is divided in half. Well, not in half, ten and two. Um, it's divided. Ten tribes become what is called Israel, and two tribes remain what is called Judah. Judah has its capital in Jerusalem. Israel has its capital in Samaria. Okay? Eventually, one of the kings that rises to the throne in Samaria is named Ahab. And Ahab is this very wicked guy who's incredibly spineless and really, really dumb. What Ahab eventually does is marry the daughter of basically a, a priest of Baal. Okay? Her name is Jezebel. So Ahab marries Jezebel, and Jezebel perverts Israel with the worship of Baal. So much so that next to the place where they do their own religious celebrations, they set up a temple for Baal. Okay? They set up altars for Baal, and they build a priesthood for Baal. Right? And Jezebel is behind all of this. She's loving it. She's like, God, Baal, yes. Right? So she sets up this entire uh, worship of Baal in Israel, in that place. And the worship of Baal led people towards sexual immorality uh, and, and eating food sacrificed to idols. So these were deplorable practices in God's Israel. And Jezebel encouraged them. And not only that, but Jezebel wanted to kill everybody who ever spoke out against idolatry. Right? So we hear stories of, uh, of uh, prophets being pursued by Jezebel, uh, people afraid for their life because of her wickedness and how she wants to murder all the prophets of God. Uh, this is just a, a corrupt practice that she, that she deals in. And so when Jesus says to the church of Thyatira, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, it's a giant statement, okay? That if anybody has any knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, they would recognize this is evil at its core, 
the woman Jezebel all throughout scripture represented turning from God and turning to false gods on purpose with intention and with vice, right? It was just, that was the representation. It came with the name Jezebel. And so that was a a call of correction that Jesus brought to this church because apparently there was somebody in the church who taught, hey, it's okay to not stay true to God. It's okay to not worry about holiness and go ahead and sleep in the shrines of other gods. Sleep by sleep meaning sleep, sleeping around, right? It's okay to worship at these other feasts and not be faithful to Jesus as king. This woman, her name wasn't Jezebel. She was just tagged as a, another Jezebel. And Jesus warns, she's in your midst. She's teaching people that these things are okay. And Jesus comes to the church strongly and says, you're letting it happen. You're just, you're, you're leaving it run wild. You're not addressing what's going on. And so he says, I have that against you. In verse 21, it says that Jesus gave her time to repent. Right? We know that it is not the justice and the wrath of God that leads to repentance, but rather it's his kindness. It's that God is long-suffering with us, that he is patient with us. This is your story and this is my story, that when I was far from God and away from him and, and speaking out blasphemy against him, what did he do? He went to a cross and he suffered and died for me. Jesus is patient. He wants us to come to repentance. He wants to show us his kindness. But he says in this case with this woman in this church, time's up. I've given her the time to repent. Now, this might have looked like confrontation. Maybe some people had talked to her and were like, hey, it's not really what Jesus calls us to. We should really flee sexual immorality. That's what Paul wrote to us about. We should really hold ourselves to making Jesus king, not Caesar king. We should really worship God alone, not these false deities and their temples. Maybe there was some opportunities for her to repent like that, where people came to her. Maybe God, in his sovereignty, brought her to Scripture, brought her to verses that would lead her towards conviction, and she ignored them. She rolled up the scroll, set it aside, and continued to teach falsely in the church. Whatever it was, God gave her time to repent. But what eventually happens is that he promises to bring judgment. And this is where culturally and contextually we, we, have, we have a big struggle because our world hates the idea of God as judge, right? But the truth of Scripture shows us that Jesus sees. We see that both in verse 18 and then also um, in verse 23, Jesus says of himself, I am he who searches mind and heart. Scriptures lead us to see that God sees everything and that he cannot leave alone those things which are evil. God will bring judgment. And so in verse 22, it says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, 
unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. And so Jesus here is talking about people who participate with her in this teaching. There's some people that have kind of rose up as her posse, as her crew, like the folks that like her teaching better than Paul's teaching, better than Jesus' teaching. That's who Jesus is talking about here. The ones that she commits adultery with are those who are affirming her teaching and saying, yes, that's good. We too want to pursue immorality and idolatry. We're going to join with you. And Jesus gives them a chance to repent as well. But he says, if they don't, then judgment will come. And we really struggle with this idea. But we need to understand that judgment is a requirement or a part of God's holiness and his love. We react against this idea. We don't like the idea of judgment from God. And yet, we look around and we see demands for judgment everywhere. Right? I mean, the current state of our culture is people ought to be judged for what is found out about them and they ought to lose their jobs for it and their reputation ought to be completely smeared because of it. It should be over, right? I mean, the Me Too movement has led towards this main idea. If people abuse, they ought to lose their power and that's absolutely true. They ought to. When people abuse authority, they ought to lose their power. And they ought to never be trusted with it again. Right? Like the sick doctor at MSU. Never again. Alone. In a room of practice. Never again. Right? That idea resonates with our world right now, you guys. We look at these things that are being uncovered. Right? Because suddenly nothing is hidden. And when this evil comes out, we demand justice. Yet, my lust, I want God to leave that alone. Right? The things that I hide in the dark corners of my heart, I want God to leave that alone. Right? My objectification of human beings for my own personal sexual pleasure, I want that left alone. That's, that's just my business. No, it's not. Because that's my business grows into these abuses. When a wicked heart like mine and like yours gets a hold of sin, it has no other thing to do but grow. And so we ought not harbor sin in our hearts and say, God, I don't want your spotlight shined on this. The church of Thyatira needed to remember Jesus' eyes were a flaming fire. He sees it all. He sees what that woman Jezebel is doing. He sees how that, temp, how that teaching leads us astray. He sees how we harbor sin in the depths of our heart, and he wants to expose it. And by his grace, we can repent now. But we need to know, one day, the truth that sets us free today will be the truth that judges and that's a scary, scary thought because God alone has perfect justice. And so we see in our culture both the rejection and the desire for judgment. 
right? As long as it's somebody else, we want it. As long as it's some bad, evil, mean guy or gal oppressing poor, innocent little ones, then we want justice. But as soon as it's me and my evil and my sinfulness, hands off, we say, right? We're worshiping two wrong or two opposing views. We need to come in line and see that Jesus alone is judge. And we need to come and see that judgment is love. If you love and you have not anger, then you don't have real love. And this is an intense statement. And I want to have the help of Tim Keller here to show this clearly. He says this, The problem is that if you want a loving God... You have to have an angry God. He says, please think about it. Loving people can get angry. Not in spite of their love, but because of it. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you can get. Have you noticed that? He says. When you see people who are harmed or abused, you get mad. Right? If you don't, you're dead. There's nothing to you. When you see them abused, you get mad. Why? Out of love, he says. Your senses of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition to each other. If you see people destroying themselves or destroying other people and you don't get mad, it's because you don't care. You're too absorbed in yourself, too cynical, too hard. The more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms your beloved. And the greater the harm, the more resolute your opposition will be. Do you see the necessity, the necessity of a God who judges if he is a God who loves? Guys, he made this place. He made us. He made all people from all places and all times, of all ethnicities, of all gender. And every time there's oppression, and every time there's evil, and every time there's injustice, God's wrath is active towards that. God does not want his world broken like this. He loves so deeply. That's why he has the response of anger and wrath. We're prone to think wrath is an Old Testament part of God that went away when Jesus came because Jesus was nothing but love. But look at the ministry of Jesus. It was filled with wrath. It was filled with wrath. Look at his woes to the Pharisees. He calls out these religious leaders because they are oppressing the masses with their self-righteousness, right? Look at the way that Jesus lifts the fallen. They are oppressed by brokenness. Look at the way that Jesus treats the leper or the girl or the woman or the child. Jesus was fiercely moving against the oppression of his day by bringing deliverance and healing and rescue his life 
articulated that love has wrath. And what's the problem with us is we say, yeah, but not for me. You can't, you can't judge me. Right? We do this. You, you don't know. You don't know what I've had to deal with. You can't judge me. You haven't been in my shoes. You don't know what my parents were like. You don't know my neighborhood. You don't know what those people did to me when I was 11. You can't judge me. Who's God? Who's God to judge me? What does he know? He can't. God can't judge me. God's never known what I've known. God's never seen what I've seen, right? We, we buck up with this resistance. There's this story that illustrates well this idea. It's called The Long Silence, and its author is unknown. I just want to read it word for word. It says, At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but some groups near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. She said, we endured terror and beatings and torture and death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. She said, why should I suffer judgment? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light. There was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. And so each of these groups sent forth their leader, their, rep their representative chosen amongst them because they had suffered the most. A Jew, a Negro, a woman from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalamide child, and others. In the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to life on earth as a man. They said, let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Let him be tried by a prejudiced jury and let him be convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. And at last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. So there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses 
to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. Jesus knows. Not with some detached form of ethereal knowledge, but with a deep and intimate acquaintance with grief. Jesus knows. Everything that has been faced, he faced. Every temptation that's wrestled with, he wrestled with. Every abandonment and every abuse and every neglect and every injustice and poverty and friendlessness and homelessness and rejection and skepticism and doubt and betrayal by those closest to him and disownment by friends and family. Jesus knew it close and intimately and purposely. And why? Because God had a plan to deal with wrath. And that plan was to pour it out on his son. God said, I cannot tolerate evil. It must be extinguished. I must force it out with my anger. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, with the skies in the middle of the day suddenly growing dark, with an earthquake, with fear and trembling, and a scream from Jesus, God's wrath was executed. That's why, for the church of Thyatira, who is being called to repent, for us who are being called to repent, judgment could be, in Jesus, a thing of the past. not a fear for the future. In Christ and in Christ alone, all our judgment has landed so that we have no fear. But for those who reject the hope of the gospel, the glorious truth of Christ absorbing the wrath of God in our place so that we might be free from judgment, when that is rejected, then judgment remains. And that's the final pouring out that the book of Revelation talks about when at last all evil will be done. Because make no mistake, God isn't done yet. This world doesn't look like what he's going to make it look like. We must endure these tough times and hold on to Jesus because our judgment is in the past, but for those who don't, the future is grim. And Jesus will return to set everything right so that one day every tear will be dried, there will be no more sorrows and no more weeping and no more death and no more abuse and no more anger. It will be extinguished once and for all when his kingdom comes. That's the promise of Scripture. 
And we lean into that today knowing that when we hold on to Jesus, we will be given what he earned for us. We see that at the end of the passage. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers to the end, we will receive the morning star. That's Jesus. Jesus is the bright and morning star. And he promises to give himself to us. John Stott says it nicely like this in summary. In pledging to give this star to the conqueror, Christ is pledging to give himself. Rejecting Jezebel, they will receive Christ. They will be permitted to share not only in his authority but also in his glory. Refusing to dive into the depths of Satan, they will fathom the depths of Christ. Turning their backs on the darkness of sin, they will see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christian overcomes. Christian overcomers, however great their renunciations may have been on earth in the battle for holiness, will with this star, this Christ, remain absolutely and eternally content. So I pray that we will know deep in our hearts that Jesus sees us and that he knows us and that we would be encouraged towards purity and towards holiness that come from true faith as we repent and overcome the temptation to compromise. And most of all, may we know that God's judgment has fallen on Christ and that by his power, we who will endure in faith shall receive his great reward. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the holiness and glory and perfection and beauty of you is often so far out of view for us. God, we have messages and distractions and tasks and duties and obligations and burdens and stresses and all these things in the world that you know of they derail us they pull us away from knowing what is true of you and what's more God we have the lies of an age that tell us God is not that big he is not that powerful if he was why would there be all this bad stuff in the world he must be absent or non-existent at all and we're prone to dumb down the truth of scripture and to shrink Jesus in our sight and God like the church in Thyatira I pray that you would lead us to repent in the places that we do that that we would see that you know us that you are acquainted with the deep things in our hearts and that you call them out for our good, that you want to rid us of those things which stain and compromise and derail us because you're cleansing and you're purifying and it's for our good that you do that. Lord, this idea of you as judge, it's tough and it's heavy. I know it. It was hard to think about all week and it's hard to deal with right here in this moment. Would you help us by your spirit to reconcile this reality of your love and wrath 
and that we would see the perfect picture of it on the cross of Jesus where he did not turn away from the wrath turned on him by you, but he endured it so that it wouldn't have to be turned out on us. It is this that we celebrate at your table, that we rejoice in song and prayer. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.